Why does anyone still care about Marxism? Karl Marx has been dead for well over a century. Everywhere Marxism has been tried, it has left death and destruction in its wake. In fact, nothing in the last thousand years comes close to the amount of tyranny, terror, and mass murder brought about by Marxist regimes. Yet Marxism lives. It may present itself today as postmodernism, multiculturalism, feminism, environmentalism, or critical race theory. But it's still Marxism. So, there must be good reasons why it is endured, even flourished in the face of unremitting failure. Say what you will about Marx the economist. He was a master psychologist. He recognized that there are many people in every society who are motivated by envy and resentment. Marx speaks directly to them. He tells them that their responsibility for the misery in their lives belongs to the capitalist system. If we can just get rid of that, he promises, we can eliminate poverty, inequality, exploitation, class conflict, war, and alienation. Not a bad list if you're looking to start a revolution. But there's more. Marxism assures us that this socialist utopia is close at hand, available to all, not in some distant future or in the next life, but here and now. All we have to do is overcome one little obstacle, human nature. Marx expressed his deepest views on this subject in his Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts of 1844. They can be summed up in one phrase, the enemy of being is having. In other words, the desire to own things makes you a bad person. However, you're not to blame. The blame belongs to capitalism. The most common interpretation of Marx's philosophy suggests that he opposed capitalism because it creates an unjust world of inequality, exploitation, and class conflict. Marxism, according to this view, is all about equalizing income and social status. This is true, but it doesn't go far enough. Marx saw the accumulation of material wealth as dehumanizing. The more money and material possessions one acquires, the more estranged one is from his true humanity. And what was that? In the philosopher's socialist paradise, one gets to eat, drink, and go to the theater free of charge and without having to earn a living. Best of all, you get to do it without the guilt of being a moocher. All you have to do is enjoy yourself. Or, as Marx put it, you can do one thing today and another tomorrow. Hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, and rear cattle in the evening. Yes, rear cattle in the evening. That's how in touch Marx was with reality. But who cleans out the sewers, does the dirty jobs that keep a society functioning? Ironically, in the evil capitalist society, the sewer cleaner freely chooses to take on his job. In the socialist paradise, coercion is almost always required. Marx never bothered with such messy details. He left that to others. Unfortunately, those others always turn out to be megalomaniacs, like Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Castro, Pol Pot, and Hugo Chavez. They were the ones who brought Marx to life and in the process caused tens of millions to suffer and die. Contrary to Marx's claims, work freely chosen brings both money and dignity. Furthermore, most people work best when they pursue their own self-interest, an idea Marx despised. To him, 
Self-interest turns everyone into Ebenezer Scrooge, greedy, grasping, and unfeeling. Not only is money, that is capital, inherently corrupting, but the acquisition of it can't be done honestly or fairly. The rich got rich by exploiting the worker. For Marx, there's no other possible explanation. For many today, there is no other possible explanation. For these people, Marx offers a philosophical justification for their anger, even their rage. From generation to generation, the formula never varies. Only by bringing the privilege down can the underprivileged be brought up. The venom that pours out of Marx's pen stems ultimately from the fact that reality wouldn't conform to his worldview. It never seems to have occurred to him that people are complex beings with different talents, ambitions, and desires. It may be more accurate to say he didn't care. If people wouldn't conform to his worldview voluntarily, then the state would just have to use other methods of persuasion, like murder and terror. It all made sense to the philosopher as he toiled away in a corner of the British Museum or in his squalid London apartment. What is astonishing is that millions came to believe him. What is tragic is that millions more suffered and died because they did. What is scary is that millions continue to believe. I'm Brad Thompson, Professor of Political Science at Clemson University for Prager University. In a remarkably short period of time, the philosophy of Karl Marx changed the course of history. At the height of its power, half the world fell under its dominion, kept there by a combination of fear, terror, and brute force. Then suddenly, in the late 1980s, it imploded. By all rights, this should have been the end of Marxism. But it hasn't turned out that way. From environmentalism with its rejection of free markets to critical race theory, which sees white patriarchy as the source of all evil, you'll find Marxism at its root. The leaders of Black Lives Matter, for example, openly acknowledge their devotion to Marxist ideology. How do we explain this fascination for something that has so utterly failed everywhere it's been put into practice? We can find answers in one of Marx's most enduring epigrams. From each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. Marx was a poor economist, but a talented journalist. The only actual job he ever had. He knew how to turn a phrase. But what does this slogan even mean? According to what ability? According to what need? And who determines anyone's ability or anyone's need? Marx never bothered to answer these obvious questions. He had much bigger things on his mind, nothing less than the creation of an entirely new kind of world for an entirely new kind of human being. Marx believed that by altering man's economic and political institutions, he could alter, or even better, rewire the human brain. He could conjure a new consciousness that would replace the old false one. This new man would be less selfish and acquisitive and more altruistic and communal. In short, he would be a superior type of man. Of course, this new man could only reach this goal if he wasn't preoccupied with having to earn money. According to Marx, money and the pursuit of it ruined everything. Marx hated money, maybe because he never found a way to make it. Getting rid of it was central to his worldview. Once a person's subsistence, one's daily bread, was distributed on the basis of need rather than greed, Man's natural communal affections, long suppressed by his capitalist overlords, would be renewed. 
This is Marx channeling the 18th century French social thinker Jean-Jacques Rousseau, one of the few people Marx admired. According to Rousseau, this is what you must do if you want to create a new society. He who dares to undertake the making of a people's institutions must feel himself capable of changing human nature, of transforming each individual who by himself is a complete and solitary whole into part of a larger whole from which the individual receives his life and his being. Understand this, and you understand not only a key feature of Marx's thought, but the dark history of the 20th century. Marx took Rousseau literally. Human nature had to be returned to its allegedly pure, selfless state before capitalism, with its enlightenment and Judeo-Christian values corrupted him. But creating this new man would be a formidable task. Marx anticipated that many would object, especially the owners and managers that had a large stake in the capitalist system. Friendly persuasion wasn't going to get the job done. Only the ruthless application of state power would be up to the task. Marx was all for it. Private property, wage labor, competition and profits, these would have to go. The state, now run by the workers themselves, the dictatorship of the proletariat, as Marx called it, would control production and pricing. It would wisely manage the economy, from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. And imagine how wonderful it would be. No more ego, no more self-interest. Instead, everybody working for the benefit of everybody else. Peace, love, and harmony. For many, it's a very seductive idea. Who wouldn't aspire to live in such a world? Look around, a Marxist might say. The powerful exploit the weak, crushing the majority's noble aspirations, your aspirations, just so they can have more. It's unfair and unjust. How much better if we just start over, start clean? That's the Marxist socialist dream. In real life, it's a nightmare. Needs become demands and demands become rights. The best are mocked and the worst exalted. Innovation withers while the government grows ever larger. Eventually, the productive become virtual slaves to the unproductive and the society collapses economically, intellectually, and morally. And then the real horror starts. If you think I'm exaggerating, just ask someone who fled the Soviet Union or Cuba or Venezuela. For all its risk and inequities, they prefer freedom. And we should too. I'm Brad Thompson, professor of political science at Clemson University for Prager University. Engraved on Karl Marx's tombstone in Highgate Cemetery in North London are the following words. The philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. Substitute the word professor for the word philosopher. We really don't have philosophers anymore, and you get right to the core of Marx's enduring attraction to the contemporary world. Marx demands that the intellectual class, the professors of law, sociology, history, women's studies, anthropology, journalism, and so on, come out of the ivory tower and join the barricades to see themselves not as the preservers of the dusty past, but the creators of a new and glorious future. The lure has proven to be very strong, and it's not hard to understand why. 
How much more meaningful, exciting, and romantic to see yourself as an agent of change rather than a mere academic? How much more meaningful, exciting, and romantic to see the young people who fill up your classroom as potential soldiers in the cause? Send them into the world with the same revolutionary spirit, the same disgust toward bourgeois middle-class values that you feel, and you've done your job. And we must give these lecture hall revolutionaries their due. Look around. For the most part, they've succeeded. Drill into any current leftist movement, environmentalism, critical race theory, the massive expansion of the welfare state, not to mention diversity, equity, and inclusion offices at every university and major corporation, and you will find Marxism at its core, a contempt of the Enlightenment and the Judeo-Christian value system from which capitalism springs. Marx's most famous call to action, workers of the world unite, was not, of course, to the professoriate, but to the laboring class. That didn't work out so well. Workers, especially in the United States, turned out to be more interested in refrigerators than revolutions. The only barricade they were passionate about was a white picket fence in front of a green suburban lawn. Poor, benighted souls, the appeal of Marxism was somehow lost on them maybe because they didn't go to college. But the intellectual class never lost faith. Even after Stalin, even after Mao, even after Castro wrecked Cuba, even after Pol Pot murdered millions of his fellow Cambodians, even after Hugo Chavez destroyed the strongest economy in South America, the academic elite remained true believers. Indeed, in a world without faith, where God is dead, Marxism has become, in effect, a substitute religion. One of the major strengths of Marxism, in contrast to both modern liberalism and conservatism, is the unyielding commitment of its followers to this faith, to bear witness to it, and to act on it. It summons these followers to join a crusade to destroy the evil that is capitalism and to create the good that is communism. In our secular world, the Marxist ideal gives the Marxist true believer a reason to live, a reason to die, and a reason to kill. Monsters like Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Kim Il-sung, Ho Chi Minh, and Pol Pot took this to the nth degree and murdered millions. For the record, the latter two were politically educated in France. Pol Pot studied at the Sorbonne. If you think I'm exaggerating the evils of Marxism, if you think Stalin and those other guys got communism wrong, but your new democratic socialism will get it right, think again. Marxism leads a society toward a fixed goal, a utopian vision of pure freedom in which the individual is liberated from the false consciousness of capitalism. Unfortunately, by Marx's own definition, the path to this utopia requires the destruction, economically, politically, and morally, of every vestige of civilization as we know it. Economically, Marxism seeks to destroy free enterprise, the division of labor, profit and loss, competition, and material wealth. Politically, it seeks to destroy the rule of law, separation of powers, and freedom of speech. Morally, it seeks to destroy individualism, religious liberty, and independent thought. And on top of this rubble, it builds the all-powerful state ruled by an all-powerful elite. 
This is why the communist 1%, the true 1%, must use the full power of the state to force the 99%, the true 99%, to become something they are not and do not want to be. And if that doesn't work, the secular philosophy of brotherly love simply intimidates into silence and ultimately liquidates as much of the 99% as is necessary to keep everybody in line. Censorship, secret police, and re-education camps. These are not bugs in an imperfect system. They are features, critical parts of its design. In short, the problem with Marxism has been and always will be Marxism. Too bad the academic establishment has yet to figure this out. Or even worse, maybe they have. I'm Brad Thompson, professor of political science at Clemson University for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. When the American colonies went to war in 1775 against Great Britain, the greatest military power on Earth, they did it without an army. There were local militias here and there, but no army in any organized sense. But the Americans did have a general. His name, of course, was George Washington. What possessed this man, a prosperous Virginia farmer, to take on such a dangerous, seemingly hopeless mission? Washington fervently believed in the cause of independence. He was willing to risk everything to make this ambition a reality. And he believed there was a chance America could win. He believed it because, ironically, he had fought for the British. He knew their strengths, certainly, but he also knew their weaknesses. Washington's education began in 1753 at the tender age of 21. Ambitious for a military life, Washington volunteered to deliver an ultimatum from the royal governor of Virginia to the commander of the French forces in the Ohio River Valley. The ultimatum said this to the French, this is our colonial territory, not yours. Vacate or face the consequences. Although military command was completely new to him, Washington already displayed the intangibles of leadership, decisiveness, the ability to stay calm under pressure, and physical courage. What he lacked in sound judgment, he was 21, he made up in sheer determination. He endured extreme hardships without complaint, faced near-death experiences without flinching. Almost freezing to death and nearly drowning in an icy river were only two examples. That the French commander scoffed at the Virginia governor's demands was disappointing, but that wasn't Washington's fault. The following year, 1754, Washington was appointed lieutenant colonel of the Virginia Regiment and was once again sent to the frontier to engage the French. When Washington, near what is now Pittsburgh, became convinced that the French were preparing to ambush him, he decided to make a preemptive attack. In the ensuing battle, a French officer, Ensign Jumonville, and nine of his men were killed. The French didn't take it well. They sent a force to track Washington down. Washington decided to make his stand at a small, hastily built enclosure he dubbed Fort Necessity. It should have been his last stand. In a driving rain, the French surrounded the fort and opened fire. One hundred of Washington's men were either killed or wounded before he finally surrendered. The terms of surrender were written, of course, in French, which Washington didn't understand. 
To his great dismay, he later learned that in signing the document, he had admitted to ordering the assassination of Jumonville. The French later used this admission to justify their claim that it was the British who started what became known as the Seven Years' War in Europe or the French and Indian War in the colonies. In the words of English writer and politician Sir Horace Walpole, the volley fired by a young Virginian in the backwoods of America set the world on fire. This was the first time Washington's name was heard in the courts of Europe. It would not, of course, be the last. In 1755, Washington was attached to British forces led by General Edward Braddock. The British were determined to drive the French out of North America. Washington supported this ambition, but was appalled by the execution. Braddock's plan failed to account for the fighting prowess of the French, and especially the Indians, and especially in dense forest wilderness. When the French and Indians attacked in what became known as the Battle of the Monongahela, the British literally didn't know what hit them. The enemy seemed to be firing from behind every tree. The bloodshed was appalling. Braddock paid the ultimate price. He was killed along with 456 of his men. Washington, who had two horses shot out from under him and had four bullets pierce his clothes and hat, took charge of the remnants of the British army. His ability to stay cool under fire became the stuff of instant legend. Washington was now a combat veteran. The Braddock disaster seared into his mind the gravity of war. He would forever carry this with him. It shaped his military strategy. He would never sacrifice his men needlessly. He also learned that there is no substitute for discipline. It's a myth that Washington was a fan of sharpshooting backwoodsmen, just the opposite. Instilling discipline to Washington was his first job as a leader. Fighting effectiveness, he believed, depended on that. Twenty years after the Battle of Monongahela, John Adams stepped forward in Congress to recommend a commander for the Continental Army that didn't yet exist. To Adams and many others, Washington, now 43 years old, married, and a leading citizen of Virginia, was an obvious choice. Adams was doing Washington no favors, but Adams was right. There was only one man for the job. I'm Edward Lengel, Chief Historian at the National Medal of Honor Museum for Prager University. It's hard to imagine there would have been a United States of America without George Washington. He was there at the birth of the nation. He successfully guided it through war and nurtured it in peace. How did he do it? Not by being a great general, a potent political theorist, or even a clever politician. He was none of those things. And yet he was admired by generals, political theorists, and politicians. Why? because he was a man great men trusted. Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, and so many others looked up to him, literally. He was one of the tallest men of his era at six feet three. Add courage, integrity, and wisdom, and you have a truly impressive figure. Let's start with his courage. That was never in doubt. If anything, he had too much of it. Bold to the point of rashness as a young man, he fought for the British against the French over control of the Ohio Valley, then the westernmost point of the American wilderness. Throughout that conflict, 
known as the French and Indian War and the American Revolution, Washington was always in the thick of the action. His aides often struggled to keep him from surging too far ahead of his own troops. In one battle, his coat was pierced four times by musket fire. Horses were shot out from under him. Amazingly, some would say miraculously, he was never wounded, not so much as a flesh wound. By the time the revolution broke out in April of 1775, Washington was firmly committed to the cause of American independence. He arrived in Philadelphia in May of that year to offer his services to the Continental Congress. He was quickly made commander of the new rebel army. There was only one problem. There was no army to speak of. There was just a ragtag collection of state militias. How was Washington going to defeat the greatest military force in the world with that? It was a problem the general struggled with for eight and a half years. That he managed to hold the army together, organize it into a disciplined fighting force, and guide it to victory was testament to his fortitude, his patience, and his personal bravery. Of his integrity, one need only look at what he did when the war ended, exactly what he had promised to do when the war began. He resigned his military command and went home to Mount Vernon. By stepping down, Washington raised himself up as the embodiment of Republican heroism. It is said that King George III asked the London-based American painter, Benjamin West, what Washington was likely to do when peace came. West replied that Washington would probably return to his farm. The king was astounded. If he does that, his majesty declared, he will be the greatest man in the world. This story may be apocryphal, but the Newburgh Rebellion and how Washington handled it is not. With experience had come wisdom. As the revolution wound down, a group of officers refused to give up their arms until they were paid. If they didn't get their money, which Congress didn't have, they would take control of the government. It was not an idle threat, no less a figure that Alexander Hamilton was in a panic. Washington, no great orator, sought to defuse their anger. They had risked everything to create a Republican society, he told the officers. To abandon the cause now, when true victory was so close, would mean all their sacrifices would have been in vain. However convincing the speech may have been, it was a simple gesture that carried the day. He concluded his remarks by reading to them a letter sent to him from a member of Congress. Suddenly he stopped. From his pocket he pulled a pair of spectacles. None of the officers had ever seen him wear them. Putting the glasses on, Washington said, Gentlemen, you must pardon me. I have grown gray in the service of my country and now find myself going blind. He finished reading the letter and left the hall without another word. The gesture, sincerely offered with just the right touch of stagecraft, pierced the hearts of his men. Many were moved to tears. They immediately passed a resolution declaring their loyalty to civilian government. George Washington had saved the revolution once again. It wouldn't be the last time. During the writing of the Constitution and during his eight years as president, Washington was repeatedly called upon to hold the fractious young nation together. He never failed to do so. We commonly refer to George Washington now as the father of our country. 
it's hard to imagine any nation ever had a better one. I'm John Rodehamel, author of George Washington, The Wonder of the Age, for Prager University. Everybody knows what happened on July 4th, 1776. America was born. But three days earlier, on July 1st, independence hung in the balance. There was a great case to be made not to secede from Great Britain. The colonists had no army, no navy, and almost no money. England had a lot of all three. It would have made perfect sense to bend to the will of the crown, pay some extra taxes, and call it a day. There were plenty of people in Philadelphia prepared to make that case. They could have easily prevailed, yet they didn't. They didn't because of the words of one man, John Adams. At a key moment in the congressional debate, when the forces against independence appeared to have the upper hand, Adams rose to his feet. Without notes and without any preparation, he made the case for independence. By the time he sat down, the case had been won. We don't have a transcript of what he said. If we did, Adams might rank even higher than he does now among the founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson said years later that the speech was so powerful in thought and expression that it moved us from our seats. Adams was, Jefferson said, our colossus on the floor. If Washington was the sword of the American Revolution and Jefferson the pen, then Adams was its engine. Brilliant, demanding, meticulous, but often irascible. He was not an easy man to love. At some point in his life, he irritated, if not alienated, everyone with whom he worked. Yet these same people would invariably come to appreciate him. That included Washington, and especially Jefferson, with whom he sometimes fought bitterly. Ironically, for all his cantankerousness, his marriage to Abigail Adams stands as one of the great love stories of American history. Their correspondence, spanning five decades, is a vibrant, living history of the nation's early years. Abigail frankly described her husband as short, thick, and fat. But what he lacked in good looks and physical stature, he made up in intellect, personal integrity, and clarity of thought. Born in 1735 near Boston, Adams relentlessly pushed himself to rise early, work hard, and live a moral life. He strove in the language of the day for a life of virtue over vice. He first came to public attention in 1765 when he issued a stirring rebuke of the much-hated Stamp Act. For the next 18 years, he fought unceasingly against British tyranny and for American liberty, dedicating his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor to the struggle. These were not idle words. In his 40s, by the time of the Revolution, he didn't fight in the war. Instead, he crossed the Atlantic four times on diplomatic missions, braving winter storms, diseases such as pneumonia and dysentery, and British warships. Capture would have meant summary execution. In Europe, as befit his character, he was all business. He helped Benjamin Franklin bring the French into the war on the American side, and he arranged critical loans from Dutch banks. When the war ended, it was Adams, along with Franklin and John Jay, who negotiated the treaty in which England officially recognized the new United States. For all these efforts, Adams was paid virtually nothing. But fortune was never his aim. 
Creating a new, better, freer country than the world had ever known was all that he cared about. As one delegate to the Continental Congress said, the man to whom the country is most indebted for the great measure of independence is Mr. John Adams. Following the war, Adams served two terms as vice president under George Washington, and then one term as the second president of the United States. Taking over for Washington was a thankless task. Everyone deferred to the great general. To put it mildly, Adams was not granted the same courtesy. Still, the new president was able to distinguish his time in high office with two significant achievements, one marked by something he did do, the other by something he did not do. What he did was convince the Congress to build a navy. Given the strong opposition to any kind of standing military, this was no mean feat. But Adams was adamant that the United States could not become a great nation without a great navy. He pushed through the legislation that made it possible. What he did not do was get the country involved in the war in Europe. France insisted that America join it in its fight against England. France had come to America's aid during the fight for independence, the French argued. Here was America's chance to repay the debt. Adams firmly declined. The infant nation was in no position to wage war for or against anyone. As the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence approached, a 91-year-old Adams was asked to provide a toast for the upcoming celebration. He offered two words, independence forever. It turned out to be his last public utterance. How fitting. I'm Brad Thompson, professor of political science at Clemson University and author of America's Revolutionary Mind for Prager University. There's a reason why Thomas Jefferson's face is on our coinage, why his sculpted head is on Mount Rushmore, and why there is a magnificent memorial in his honor in Washington, D.C. As British historian Paul Johnson put it in A History of the American People, no one did more than Jefferson to create the United States of America. Born on April 13, 1743 in Shadwell, Virginia, Jefferson early on displayed an intellectual curiosity that would never be quenched. He devoured books on history, science, math, and philosophy while learning Latin, Greek, and French. He would eventually amass a personal library of 6,500 volumes, declaring, I cannot live without books. There was virtually no subject which he didn't find fascinating and didn't try to master. Most of the time, he succeeded. He graduated from college in just two years with a plan to practice law. At age 25, he won a seat in Virginia's House of Burgesses, Virginia's colonial equivalent of a House of Representatives. Entering politics just as the American colonies were beginning to challenge British rule. Although Jefferson was not a gifted speaker, he was a genius with words. This gift did not go unnoticed. John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, no rhetorical slouches themselves, asked him to write the first draft of America's Declaration of Independence. Their confidence was richly rewarded. Jefferson's assertions that all men are created equal and that nature's God, the creator, had granted them inalienable rights formed the cornerstones of the American experiment. Jefferson was not yet 34. In 1790, President Washington appointed him to be the new nation's first Secretary of State, one of the two key posts in Washington's cabinet. 
The other post was Secretary of the Treasury, to which Washington appointed Alexandra Hamilton. The two became bitter rivals. Jefferson distrusted Hamilton's belief in a powerful central government. Hamilton thought Jefferson was an impractical dreamer. Both misunderstood the other. This was probably inevitable given their strong convictions and considerable egos. And although it's true that Jefferson was a lofty political theorist, he was also a cunning politician. His hardball tactics angered or alienated people who had once been close allies, most notably John Adams. Mm. After defeating Adams in a contentious election in 1800, Jefferson served two terms as America's third president, a tenure historian still considered among the most consequential and successful in American history. He reduced the scope and reach of the federal government, cutting taxes, lowering spending, and retiring half of the national debt. This was the small government Jefferson in action, but he had no problem exercising vigorous executive authority when he felt it was necessary. Nowhere is this better expressed than his greatest accomplishment as president, the acquisition of the Louisiana Territory from France for $15 million or just four cents an acre. In one fell swoop, Jefferson orchestrated a deal that doubled the size of the United States, incorporating territories of what are now 15 states, while also eliminating the presence of a powerful European empire from North America. After completing two terms, Jefferson, following Washington's example, stepped down from the first office. He spent the last 17 years of his life at his beloved home, Monticello, an estate he built not far from his birthplace. There, he not only founded the University of Virginia, but repaired his relationship with his long-lost friend, John Adams. They began a fabled correspondence that continued nearly to the end of their lives. Remarkably, if one is so inclined, one might even say providentially, Jefferson and Adams died on the same day, July 4, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the signing of Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson was a complex man who must be judged in the context of his time. This is, of course, best understood in his relationship to slavery. He grew up in a world that took slave ownership for granted. He owned slaves as his father had before him, yet he abhorred the very idea of slavery. On numerous occasions, he acknowledged that he violated his fundamental belief that all men are created equal. And yet it's also true that Jefferson pointed the way out of that heinous institution. For this, we are forever in his debt. Abraham Lincoln knew this. Of the Declaration of Independence, Lincoln wrote, Thomas Jefferson gave liberty not alone to the people of this country, but hope to the world for all future time. I'm Carol Swain for Prager University. From the time he joined the Continental Congress in 1780, through his second term as the fourth president of the United States, James Madison was in the middle of everything. When it came to the Constitution, he understood it better than any single person because nobody contributed more to its creation. When it came to selling that document to the American people, he made the most persuasive arguments. When 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights, were needed to seal the deal, 
he wrote those too. Diminutive in stature, he was just over five feet tall. He was a giant in every other respect, as a writer, theorist, and most importantly, political pragmatist. He was a deep thinker who got things done, and no one worked harder to get those things done. James Madison was born in 1751 to a prosperous family in the Virginia Piedmont. Like his mentor, neighbor, and best friend Thomas Jefferson, he was well-educated in the classics and spoke multiple languages. His home state sent him as a delegate to the Continental Congress in 1780 at the age of 29. There he saw firsthand how bad a national government could be. Slow, corrupt, self-interested. He resolved to do something about it. He wasn't alone. George Washington and others pushed for a new social compact, a document that would truly bind the divergent interests of the various states. No easy feat. Their efforts paid off in May 1787 when a new constitutional convention was convened in Philadelphia. Even though he was one of the younger delegates, Madison took a lead role, not because he was so ambitious, but because he was so knowledgeable. He attended every session, gave more speeches than anyone, took meticulous notes, and drafted the plan that the delegates used as the framework for the new constitution. Writing the document was hard enough. Selling it to the American people would prove even harder. A group known as the Anti-Federalists began flooding the newspapers with anti-Constitution essays, warning that the plan would destroy liberty rather than save it. Madison and New York lawyer Alexander Hamilton came to the Constitution's defense in a series of essays known as the Federalist Papers. The two men were a dynamic duo. Hamilton did the lion's share of the writing, but Madison's submissions arguably had the most impact. He carefully explained the system of checks and balances that would define the new government. The Federalists carried the day, just barely, and the Constitution was ratified. Madison wasn't yet 40 and still a bachelor. That changed when he met Dolly Payne, a lively young widow 17 years his junior. She transformed the solitary workaholic Madison into one of the great dinner party hosts of the era. This proved invaluable to his political career. After serving as Thomas Jefferson's Secretary of State and supervising the purchase of the Louisiana Territory from the French, doubling the size of the United States, Madison was the obvious choice to become the fourth president. But there was trouble on the horizon. Great Britain, which had never fully reconciled itself to its defeat in the Revolutionary War, continued to harass the new nation at every turn. It seized American goods at sea and even forced American sailors to work for the Royal Navy. By June 1812, Madison had had enough. He asked Congress to declare war against Great Britain for continued abuses of American rights. So began the War of 1812. It was a disaster. One of the rare times Madison failed to think through an important policy decision. The United States simply wasn't prepared for war, certainly not one against the mightiest power on earth. At the low point in the conflict, Madison had to flee the White House or risk capture. In the chaos, Dolly famously saved the priceless Gilbert Stuart portrait of George Washington by having it ripped from its frame. Eventually, American forces found their footing, winning three decisive victories at Plattsburgh, Baltimore, and New Orleans. The two sides agreed to peace terms that essentially amounted to a draw. But to the American people, it was a glorious victory and Madison had guided them to it. The young nation had demonstrated once and for all that the United States could not be pushed around. The War of 1812 has rightly been remembered as America's second war for independence. 
In the spring of 1817, Madison retired to Montpelier, his estate in the Virginia Piedmont, having dedicated roughly 40 years to politics. When he started his career, the United States wasn't even a nation. When he finished, it was well on its way to becoming a world power. Many patriots contributed to the country's success, but few, if any, did as much as James Madison. I'm Jay Cost, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and author of James Madison, America's First Politician for Prager University. On December 26, 1776, 18-year-old James Monroe lay dying outside of Trenton, New Jersey. A musket ball had penetrated his left shoulder, severing a major artery. The opening months of the Revolutionary War had been a disaster for the American side. General George Washington desperately needed a victory. He launched a surprise attack against British mercenaries camped at Trenton. Monroe led the vanguard to secure the roads in and out of town. If the fate of the revolution rested on the Battle of Trenton, the Battle of Trenton rested on Monroe's success. Monroe accomplished his mission. Washington and the Americans had their victory, but it looked like it was going to cost Monroe his life. Fortunately, a local doctor got to him and stopped the bleeding. That doctor saved the life of a man who went on to play a critical role in the first 50 years of the new American nation. James Monroe had humbler beginnings than many of the other founders. Both parents died by the time he was 16, leaving him responsible for his four siblings and the family farm. He was only able to attend the College of William and Mary with help from an uncle. He didn't stay long, however, joining Washington's army at the outside of the revolution. After his time in the Army, Monroe returned to Virginia to study law, but soon turned his attention to politics. He represented Virginia in the Continental Congress, where he met his wife Elizabeth, daughter of a prominent New York City merchant. They married after a short courtship. It was a genuine love match and one of the great romances of the founding era. During this time, Monroe also developed a close friendship with fellow Virginian James Madison, but the friends found themselves on opposite sides of the critical issue of the day, the fate of the new Constitution. In one of the least appreciated but most important episodes in American history, Madison and Monroe ran against each other in the first congressional election in 1789. Monroe opposed the Constitution because it lacked a guarantee of fundamental rights, like freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Madison believed those rights were already secured by the limits on government in the Constitution. Madison won the election, but Monroe won the argument. Madison recognized that a Bill of Rights would be needed in order for the Constitution to be broadly accepted by the people. After serving terms as a senator and governor of Virginia, Monroe was sent to France by President Thomas Jefferson to buy the city of New Orleans from the French Emperor Napoleon. But to Monroe's surprise, Napoleon offered Monroe not just New Orleans, but the entire Louisiana Territory. Monroe had a problem. He didn't have any authorization to make such a large purchase. He decided to make it anyway, doubling the size of the United States. Had Monroe done nothing else, his place in American history would have been secure. But his greatest contributions were still ahead. In the War of 1812, President Madison relied more on Monroe than anybody. Monroe served as both Secretary of State and Acting Secretary of War. Working tirelessly for days on end, often with little sleep, Monroe helped Madison stave off disaster and achieve a negotiated peace with Great Britain. When Madison's second term ended, Monroe was the natural choice to replace him. 
he won the 1816 election decisively and became the fifth president of the United States. Perhaps more than any founder, Monroe had a vision for America as a growing, expanding nation. He negotiated with the British to demilitarize the Great Lakes, establishing our northern border, and set the stage for future American ownership of the Oregon Territory in the West. In the South, he acquired Florida from Spain in exchange for settling some outstanding claims. And he signed the Missouri Compromise, which diffused a major domestic crisis that threatened to split the country. The Compromise would draw a line across the country. New states above the line would be free states, and new states below the line would be slave states. Instead of civil war, this time became known as the era of good feelings. Monroe won re-election in 1820, unopposed. His most enduring accomplishment would come in his second term, the doctrine that bears his name. The Monroe Doctrine declared that the United States would not permit European powers to colonize the Western Hemisphere. In doing so, he put the world on notice. The young nation was now a major power. While Monroe did as much as any president to secure America's prosperous future, he had less success securing his own. He left the White House deeply in debt, most of it expenses he had incurred on the government's behalf. Monroe was forced to sell almost everything he owned and live with his daughter in New York City. He died in 1831 and, like Adams and Jefferson before him, on the 4th of July. We're lucky he didn't perish on that roadside in Trenton. I'm Chris DeRose, author of Founding Rivals, Madison vs. Monroe, The Bill of Rights, and The Election That Saved a Nation for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.